All right. Welcome, everybody. Here's another episode of Junior Resource Investing, the podcast dedicated to deepening your understanding of the junior resource sector and some important and exciting plays within it. As always, I'm your host, Matthew. As always, this disclaimer here is please remember that this is not financial advice. Neither myself nor my guests are financial advisors. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. For full disclosure, uh, for full disclaimer, rather, please check the YouTube notes below. With that out of the way, I am pleased to present our latest guest, Ben Turney, who is CEO of Kivango Resources. Kivango Resources is a primarily copper polymetallic explorer operating in the stable democracy of Botswana. Three large, distinct land packages make up its opportunity, KCB, KZS, and Detau, of which this interview will be focusing primarily on the Kalahari Copper Belt, or KCB for short. While it is pre-discovery, the allure of this company is that it, it has a legitimate shot at discovering a true top, a true tier one asset. It trades in London, un, London under the ticker KAV and on the OTC in the States under the ticker KVGOF. Ben, this is our first time chatting face-to-face. It's nice to finally get a chance to meet you. Thanks very much for having me, Matthew. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on the show. So why don't we start out, this is how I usually always start my interviews, 30-second elevator pitch on Kavango. Do you mind just giving us a brief overview, what it is, why is your story compelling, and why should investors uh, care about your story in particular? Well, you've pretty much given the pitch already, Matthew, where you've got a great shot at making a discovery of a tier one asset in Botswana, which is one of the best mining jurisdictions in Africa. So we have 14,500 square kilometers of ground spread across three projects. And the metals that we're going for are obviously going to be the main drivers of the green revolution over the next decade. So copper and nickel are our primary focuses. And of course, if we can uh, make discoveries on our ground, it will be transformational both for our company and we also hope the areas that we're working in. Perfect. Do you mind a brief rundown of how you ended up with Kivango in your current position? Absolutely. So I joined the company first in April 2020 as a consultant. Um, This was obviously when um, COVID first hit and the markets had tanked. So Kivango was, it was a company that was in need of a bit of support. You know, the former board, you know, they hadn't done the best job in the UK and the company's shares were trading at an all-time low and a bailout financing was put together. Um, it was only £400,000, but I was asked by the people who put that money in the co- into the company to join Cavango to help them work on their investor relations because one of the key feelings was at the time was that Cavango has this enormous opportunity in front of it. The, the land package that the company had built up is genuinely highly pers- prospective in an extremely underexplored area of the world. Botswana is 70% covered by Kalahari Sands. And what that means is that the regional geology is pretty much all obscured from view. There is some outcropping, but not so much because of the presence of these sands. So what that's meant is that even though if you look at Botswana on any geological map and where it sits on the western edge of the Capval Craton, and these cratonic edges where cratons split apart and move together and you've had enormous amounts of magma that have passed through these regions over billions of years. These are the perfect ingredients, the perfect setting for the type of deposit styles that we're looking for for our for our projects. But because of the presence of these Kalahari sands, 
there's been very little um, exploration uh, conducted over this because technology simply wasn't sophisticated enough until relatively recently to enable companies like ours to apply modern geophysics to get a view of what might be beneath the surface with the various types of modeling that we do with a view to identifying drill targets to go and explore for these large scale de deposits. So it really is an incredibly exciting jurisdiction to be in. But the company hadn't really communicated that to the market. There wasn't much awareness of the business. There wasn't much awareness of its message or its direction. So I went in to start with as a consultant. It went very well over the course of 2020. And we took the shares from 0.8 pence per share up to 3 pence a share. So we had a very good return over the course of the year. And at the end of the year, I helped the company put together a financing uh, with two million for £2 million in November 2020 with broker contacts of mine um, in the UK, First Equity. It's a company that I've been very close with in the past. I know them very well. I brought them into Cavango, and that really was transformational for the company. At that point, that was the most money the business had ever raised, and it reflected the success that we'd had over the preceding six months in terms of how we deployed pretty limited funds, but we were smart how we used the money. The opportunity then came up um, in December and I was contacted by one of the former directors saying that his colleague, Michael Foster, who was the former CEO, Michael was 71 at the end of his career. And the job of being CEO of a company like this is extremely demanding. It takes you know, a lot of energy, a lot of drive. And, you know, Michael was really looking to go and enjoy his retirement, which was entirely reasonable. Mm -hmm. So I was asked if I would join the board of Cavango uh, with a view to taking over Michael's role. So I joined the company in January 2021 as a director of the business. It took me about five months to get my hands on the various levers and to make sure I definitely wanted to take this role on. When I first joined the company, you know, it became clear to me quite early that there was a lot that needed to be done within the business. So there was a lot that needed addressing operationally within the company, a lot of improvements we needed to make. We really did need to bring this business into the 21st century. So that first five month period, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I felt that you know, we could achieve this together and that this, that this um, company could be made a success. And I was then appointed CEO, uh, I was confirmed as CEO then in June. So it took about yeah five to six months to get to that point. Interesting. I think that you say a couple of interesting things there. I think that the junior sector is such a, a funny combination of hard ge geological truths and marketing, right? So marketing without geology is just fraud and, and uh, yep. geology without marketing is just an orphan, orphan story, right? So yeah, it does absolutely take both for this to be successful in this, in this sector, right? No, I think I think you're absolutely right, Matthew. So one of the one of the things about this space, and this is something I often say to people, and the thing is, I'm always surprised how few directors actually get this. They're actually running two separate businesses. You have your business that's doing whatever you're doing operationally, and then you have your market-focused business. And I love what you just said. The, the, the companies that are just market-focused are just simply marketing. Those are typically fraudulent, and ultimately people end up making, losing their money. But the companies that just focus on their operations, that can also be quite naive, I'm afraid, because this public market space that we're in, it's a brutal environment. You really need mm -hmm. to tread very carefully. And I feel like every day you have to sort of get out of bed and pick up your sword and shield and be ready to do battle in this space. You really have to have <laughs> that sort of mindset for it while at the same time making sure that your business is doing whatever it's doing operationally and that you know, you're taking care of the team and you're a good employer and you're know, delivering in the field. So you have to get the balance between the two to be successful in this space. And I think there are a lot of good companies out there on the operational side, but because they don't get the marketing right, they get their financing strategy wrong, they get their marketing strategy wrong, and that can end up killing mm -hmm. well their opportunity mm -hmm. and also shareholder value as well. So it really is important to, to, to fuse the two together and make them work in harmony. 
Perfect. Yeah, no, and I agree. I always find it sad when you have a good geological model or a strong, you know, proven resource that ends up diluting into into a, a, a oblivion, I suppose, right? So no, no, well said. Uh, typical way that I work these interviews is we start kind of large picture, macro scale, 30,000 foot view, and then we start to drill down into more company specific, right? So do you mind just going through very, like I say, kind of boilerplate overview, Share structure, options, warrants, insider ownership. What, what, where are you at for share count and average cost basis? Sure. So currently, and I need to make sure I quote my figures correctly because there's a bit of shifting sands. But on our last, um, our last uh, shareholder presentation, we currently have insider ownership of 27%. But then there are a number of other shares that are held by founders of the company as well. So that, I believe that takes the number up to around about the 23 or 24%. But you have access to our presentation. You can see the exact figure. Mm. We currently have 435 million shares in issue. Now, I know that's obviously a different model to what you're used to in North America. In the UK, companies do tend to issue more shares. So I'd say we're sort of, you know, in a fairly decent place as far as a UK small cap company goes in terms of overall shares in issue. And then on top of that, we have about another 160 million warrants that are outstanding, all of which are due to expire next year. So part of the financing strategy that I've put together for the business. With each financing round that I've conducted over the last couple of years, we've put in place a warrant structure so that in the event we had success, we would have a very clear pathway to additional funds. Now, the way that I structured all of those packages is quite intentional, is that each tranche of warrants expires in a different month next year. So the first set expires in April, then May, then August and then December. So obviously if we succeed with our current efforts in the KCB and the Kalahari Copper Belt with our drilling, you know, we expect our share price to perform extremely well. And then obviously we have that warrant bank available to us. But of course, if things don't work out to plan and those warrants then do fall away, that's a bit of a resetting of the clock. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then what do you mind telling the market here? What are you in for and what's your average cost basis? So I've, I currently own just about two and a half percent of the company. I've just brought my cost base down because I dealt uh, two days ago. So I took off, took the advantage of not being inside for once. My average cost basis, I think, is around about 1.8 now. But again, I'd, I'd need to go back and double check that. I should have prepared mm -hmm. that before this interview. But I've got about just under two and a half percent of the company. And again, this is all in the public domain as, as part of mm -hmm. our, our disclosures for, um, for, um, for, for obviously market rules. Mm -hmm. And you did just take down 15,000 pounds worth of shares just a few days ago. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we made, we made those purchases. So we, we obviously, we announced that we had the, the drill rig was mobilized. At that point, we were cleansed of anything that might be inside. My COO, Brett, and I, we both bought £15,000 worth. We did it towards the end of the trading day. And again, that was quite intentional because the advice we got was obviously we put the announcement out, let the market then trade for a day. There wasn't actually much volume in the stock as it happened. We then did our purchases towards the end of the day just to make sure there was enough clear water between us, that announcement going out, and obviously mm -hmm. you know, pretty much a full day's trade. Mm -hmm. And then, so do you mind running through here? Next step is just cash on hand. What, where, where are you folks at? You have obviously a, a drilling program that you've just started. You have cash on hand for that, but where will you okay. be at the end of that? So we've just announced our interim results, uh, which showed our net current asset position. I believe it was around about £800,000. So those are the figures that are in the public domain. What we're looking at with the company is, of course, we have this major drill strategy that we've, we've put together and we've announced recently. Now, obviously, we don't have the funds to cover all of that, so we know that, but that was also always quite clear. I don't think anyone was expecting us immediately to go and drill 37,000 metres. However, what we have put in place is a financing strategy where we're going to use one of our private vehicles, Kanye Resources, 
And the plan is, which we announced last year, but with market conditions as they were, we weren't able to move forward on that project then. We are going to be looking at an IPO of Kanye, we believe, as, as one of the, the ways of taking this forward, the way of financing this, this KCB drill strategy. Excellent. So why don't you, this is an opportunity for a decent transition here. Do you mind giving us a brief overview and maybe let's, for, you know, in the interest of ju- being judicious with our time, focus on KCB, if that's all right with you, just because that's where we are in the current focus of the market. But is the history of the land package, is there previous exploration done on it uh, for you, for copper, nickel or, or otherwise other resources, right? Um, and then, and then can I run that through for us if you don't mind? Sure. So if we start like with your 30,000 foot view at the beginning, if you look in the Kalahari Copper Belt and the historic exploration there's been, it's focused in the northeast in Botswana and much further to the southwest in Namibia. And in the middle, there's this, this zone that hasn't been explored historically. Now, the reason for that is because this is where the Kalahari sands are more prevalent. In the northeast in Botswana and in the southwest in Namibia, there's much more outcropping geology at surface, which has led to these major discoveries that are all either being mined at the moment or are currently being brought into production. Now, one of the things to be aware of in Botswana is that the way the prospecting licenses are awarded, you have a seven-year period, um, which is basically guaranteed so long as you meet your spending commitments. But that seven years is broken down into three individual sub-periods. So the first term is three years, followed by two sets of two years. Now, what happens at the end of the first three years, typically, is that the Department of Mines requires that you have to give up 50% of the ground that you've applied, that you've applied for and worked on. The reason for that is obviously to make sure the sector you know, stays fresh and there's a continuing level of activity. Now, what can then happen is that if as a company you haven't met your spending commitments, at the end of the second two period, the second and third period, so years um, um, uh, three and years five, you can be requested or they can request that you give up further ground, depending on how much work you've done. It is at their discretion to enable you to keep it. But what this has basically meant is if you look at the prospecting license map in the northeast section of Botswana, it's been very balkanized. You have lots of these small, irregular shaped licenses where basically when companies have given up ground, they've given up what they felt was their least prospective ground. And it's a, it's a patchwork of these, these much smaller licenses which represent or reflects how much work has been done up there. As you move over towards the west, so to the west or to the south and the west of Arnsey, the town um, where, you know, which is sort of one of the main, the main towns in the, in the Copper Belt, what you see is that the license areas are much bigger. And basically what that tells you is there's been no historic exploration there. So one of the great things about Kavango is that with the land package that we've put together, we've taken advantage of the fact we've been able to secure nearly 5,500 square kilometres of ground in relatively few licences in an area where there really hasn't been much historic exploration work. So there's been very little, little drilling, there's been very little geophysical surveying, there's been very little soil sampling. So it very much is virgin ground for us, but is also highly prospective. We're surrounded by Sandfire Resources, Australian-listed company, multi-billion-dollar business. They're huge in the Kalahari Copper Belt. And immediately to our west over the border in Namibia, because some of our licenses hit the Botswana-Namibia border, Rio Tinto have nearly 10,000 square kilometres of ground that they have, Mm. which basically Mm -hmm. is immediately adjacent to ours. So we're definitely in the right postcode. And with the advances in technology that there have been and some of what Kvango is able to bring to the region, we're, we're deploying technology that hasn't been used in the KCB before. And we believe that's going to be integral to our, our or the opportunity for us and our ability to unlock this region. 
Hmm. And I think it's a point well made earlier. You referenced, you know, 21st century exploration and what we can do with geophysics now. And, and I think that's just the future, right? That all, all the low hanging fruit is, is picked geologically, right? That we are having to go undercover. Uh, and then that, that is just the future of exploration, right? So, and, and I, so I think it's a point well made. Um, do you mind? So I think when people, you know, especially maybe North American listeners or people who are not well versed in, in, in the, the the, the minutia or granularity of Africa is that when people hear African play, they think of horror stories of Nigerian oil exploration or something, right? Where the Delta is destroyed or there's corruption or, or, you know, that sort of thing. And I think that what they have to understand is countries like Botswana and Namibia are, that's a, that's night and day comparatively, right? That, 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 that jurisdictionally Bots, Botswana is a completely different kettle of fish. Can you just maybe explain or discuss what you've seen on the ground or why it is such a, a stable western style democracy and what that means for you i would honestly urge anyone to go to botswana and visit the country it's an incredible country it's beautiful the people there are amazing the infrastructure is fantastic and just you know everything about the country is great it's a wonderful place to live it's obviously very hot you know a lot of the year you know these these are a desert environment but it's um it's an amazing country one of the great things about botswana is how well organized it is the, 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 the Botswana national mindset is very much sort of collectively focused and they, they really do put a lot of pride and, and effort into how they organize pretty much everything. And that's reflected in the minerals exploration space. The country gained independence in the mid 1960s. It's been a stable democracy ever, ever since with, um, stable transfer of power. It's got an extremely, um, advanced economy, um, sort of everything that you see in a, in a city in somewhere like North America or even in Britain, you see pretty much all of this um, in Haberone and uh, with the main city in, um, in Botswana. Um, the actual infrastructure as well is fantastic. It's got amazing roads, power supply. I mean, it really does have everything that you need. Um, but one of the great advantages of it is the population is relatively small. So Botswana is a country that's about the size of France. I'm not sure what the comparison with somewhere in, in North America would be, but it's a very large country but with a population of just over 2 million people, most of whom live mm. to the east or in the southeast. So from an exploration perspective, you made a really good point about um, just now about how the, the future of exploration is looking for uh, buried targets that are underneath cover. One of the big challenges with um, deploying geophysical methods is the background interference. So if you have things like fences and power lines and you know everything that sort of human activity creates at surface can really interfere with your ability to use remote sensing technology and penetrate below the surface. You don't have that problem in Botswana. And because, as I said at the start of this interview, Botswana is covered 70% by these Kalahari sands, where it actually sits from a geological point of view, where this anywhere else in the world without that sand cover, I'm certain that they would have made major discoveries already, mm -hmm. um, but just simply the technology wasn't available to, to unlock this region. So it's um, the Mining Act there has been consistently defended um, ever since Botswana gained its um, independence. Um, and it's, it, it's a country that really is run with a very stable rule of law as well. So from a commercial perspective, it's a country you can have a great deal of confidence in. And if that's also reflected up in the Kalahari Copper Belt as well, where not only have you seen you know, quite a few significant discoveries there and, you know, a great deal of production is coming online over the next 18 months with copper production. But you've also seen a lot of corporate transactions. There's been quite a lot of M&A activity, even during the bear market, where you've seen companies have been taking one another out. I think that also just reflects what a great country this is to work in and how much confidence investors can have investing there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. So I'm going to transition more into more specific questions here. 2022 drilling. So you have completed a small drilling campaign on your KZS target, the land package, and as well as in your Ditao, both of which you know came up with interesting enough evidence that would warrant further exploration, but not that sort of headline grabbing news release, uh, you know, the, the discovery hole that everyone always is, is yeah. kind of praying for and waiting for. Right. But that's in the past. Uh, and th- like you say, that information's in the public domain that we can find easily. I think that maybe what's more relevant or, or to this conversation is that pointing forward, you just announced a very ambitious, nearly 38,000 meter drill program, 188 potential drill callers. Um, and more immediately is this, I think it's 1,250 meter six hole program just to kind of get your feet wet in the KCB. Could you, do you mind just running through, I guess, your six hole target that to initially start out with, and then maybe what your priorities are or how are you, what's the logic behind where you're going with your, with the rest of it, if you don't mind. Sure. So we've um, we pursued um, painstaking exploration um, within the KCB over the last year. Uh, I think shareholders and investors, it, it seemed like it's been going quite slow. But one of the things to understand is if you imagine, if you can try and imagine like how large an area 5,000 square, 5,500 square kilometres is, it really is a lot of land to cover. So we've had to go through um, the right steps to make sure we were focusing on the right areas. And then when we're in those areas, making sure we're doing the right work to maximise our chances of success. Because what we know about the KCB, we're in the KSZ, Kalari Suchi Zone and Ditel. Those drill programs, they've actually delivered a bit more than, than you just suggested, uh, Matthew, because what they've actually done is open up the doors for potential JV partners. But just sticking on the, the KCB for now, mm. Those two projects have been very much proof of concept. Deep belief cover, very little mm-hmm. in terms of knowing what's known about the underlying geology. In the Kalahari Copper Belt, the exploration model, the hard work's already been done in the past because the lot is known about the deposit style. The deposits have all been consistent. They're all sitting within the right sort of geological, the same, sorry, I should say, geological formations. And it's just a case of actually looking for those and deploying the methods that other companies have done very successfully. But the point is, is that this work does take time. So our main focus has been on uh, geological mapping. So surface mapping, wherever we can find any geology and what that can tell us about what's happening subsurface. But then we've done an extensive soil sampling campaign as well. So we've run over 10,000 samples um, of, of soil sampling. I mean, that's a lot of samples that our teams have taken that have then needed to be processed, sent off for lab testing in some cases. So we've done all of that work. And so far, what's been really, really pleasing to us is that we started, again, like using your analogy, that 30,000 foot view. What what do the existing regional geological maps tell us? Where do we think would be the best places for us to start? Then what we had to look at is, well, this is what's already known about the, the regional geology. We needed to go out and confirm that. And in a number of cases, We've actually shown there have been some mistakes that have been made on the official maps. You know, we've actually uncovered you know, different interpretation of what we believe is happening. And that's helped guide our exploration as well. But then in particular with the soil sampling that we've done, what's been really, really encouraging for us is the results from the soil sampling and where we've had these particularly strong readings of, of copper, which obviously is our primary target, but also zinc as well, which is a pathfinder element when looking for these, these mm-hmm. types of deposits. We found that the, the accumulations of both zinc and copper, they have, appear to have aligned with the subsurface geology, what's known about it, what's actually been mapped. So we've got two separate data sources that appear to correlate, which is very encouraging. 
On top of that, we've done a number of uh, geophysical surveys. We've used a tool called the Tremino, which is um, used in surveying to get an idea for uh, the, the, the depth of the sand cover. And we've also flown airborne electromagnetic surveys over the regions. And we've done some other survey work as well with this CSAMT technology that Cavango uh, is, is say, the first to bring to this region. And again, what we're seeing from the results of the geophysics is it aligns with our mapping, it aligns with the regional mapping that had already been done, and it also aligns with the soil sampling. So this is almost like a sort of tick box exercise where you can go through the different stages mm. and the more ticks that you get, obviously the higher confidence that you have that you have drill targets that could yield a discovery. In terms of this first campaign, these first six holes, uh, our drill partner, who we've worked very successfully with in the past, Mindea and Equity Drilling, uh, they've drilled all of our campaigns so far in very technically challenging conditions. In the KCB, it's a much more straightforward uh, campaign we'll be running. But they've been active with a multi-purpose rig. Now, that's great for us because it means we can combine both RC drilling with diamond drilling. So RC will mm. enable us to cover a lot more ground a lot more quickly. Then if we hit something that's really interesting, we can immediately switch over to diamond mm. to try and then obviously take out drill core uh, with a view to you know, learning much more about the specifics of the geology that you know we hope will be a discovery. We're only doing six holes at this stage in the first instance because Mindea, the rig's actually been booked by another company. So Mindea had, was, was already active in the region. They had a window of opportunity where that program paused or they've been reviewing the data and they've had some, you know, pretty interesting results that have come out. It's not in the public domain because this is uh, within a private company. So I can't really say too much about that. It's not really my place, but that program's on hold while they're reviewing the data. The drill rig is then going back to that prospecting license after they've done the first six holes for us. And our plan then is, is that once Mindeo has finished this work with the other clients, they'll then immediately come back. And I expect we'll probably mobilize back to 082 and work our way down this 27 kilometer strike, which is our main target area. And again, 27 kilometers long. This is a, a very big target mm -hmm. zone for us to look in where we've got some really encouraging um, copper in soil anomalies. From what the geophysics is telling us, we've got some great looking targets. So, yeah, I, my, my gut tells me that 082 is the place for us to focus on uh, for the time being. Hmm. And so, you know, you're in, it's, it's a very interesting moment coming up. It's transformative or critical moment here coming up. Uh, you know, I guess what I'll, I'll step, take a half a step backwards here. Any, any exploration process starts as a science project, right? And so that I think sometimes people are far too impatient in their expectations of, okay, first drill hole has to be a discovery hole. When really, it, oftentimes, just proving the exploration thesis, the geological thesis behind your exploration, if you can prove that, even if the hole is not economic grade, that's a massive win, right? Uh, exactly. And so, you know, sometimes it takes 6, 12, 18, however many holes, right? There are you know, famous examples of tier one d deposits that took 20 years to, to, to master, right? But the, the issue here with Kivango is that, is that you... Your 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 bank account is, is is you know depleting gradually as we go here, right? And so you're you're at this very important six hole uh, uh, drill program that in a vacuum is not a make or break thing, right? It's a brand new virgin territory, as you said. Six holes is barely even scratching the surface of the potential, but you know, you're kind of at this very gutsy moment for you where with limited funds you started this drill campaign, obviously in hopes that it will kick off a, a catalyst in a positive fashion. But I mean, do you, this obviously to me is, is speaking to a great deal of conviction for 082, as you say, but I mean, I guess what's, I mean, I'm not even sure where my question is, is buried in all of this, but where, where are you going with this, right? I mean, what happens 
if you know, best case scenario, it's easy for us to imagine what happens. Success makes financing so much easier. But what happens if if you're if these six holes are scientifically a success and prove your thesis, but they don't turn up that economic grade? What happens then? Well, for a lot of companies, what typically happens is you know their share price craters and the business is in a lot of trouble. This is really where I mm-hmm. sort of, I step in with, with my background and my experience. The, the strategy, the commercial strategy, and again, we talked earlier about the fusion between the two businesses that you run, the balance you need to have between the two. My background is public markets. I get how this game works. So the way that I've structured Cavango is as much as possible, I've tried to insulate the business from the mercies of the, of the, of the market because it is a, it's a brutal space, and especially in conditions like this. So obviously we've not sort of talked too much about this because plans are sort of still um, coming to fruition, but this is in the public domain, so I can talk about it. The strategy that we have with Kavanga is we're looking um, on the one hand with the KSZ and the Ditao projects, we're looking at potential JV bonds for both of those. We have announcements out about the KSZ uh, where we started this process with Tamasis, who we've engaged, who've been working on our behalf, looking for a KSZ partner. We've had a number of NDAs come in from large firms um, so that process is sort of, that's bubbling along in the background. And we've got some pretty high hopes for that, but let's see what comes of it. Detail has been a bit of a surprise. Uh, we've, we've attracted some interest based on the uh, petrology reports, this IOCG target that appears to be developing. That wasn't what we were looking for. We were following more sort of the carbonatite model. The carbonatite is still in play, but the actual results we've seen suggest to us that there's maybe something else going on there. And the next stage of exploration is relatively low cost and should be relatively straightforward. So that's something that is, is working in the background. But what we also have, which I touched on earlier, is the Kanye Resources vehicle. And it's always been our intention to spin Kanye out of Kavango. So what that basically means is in terms of managing our dilution, our main focus now in terms of actually looking for a discovery um, is within the Kalahari Copper Belt. That's where we believe we have our lowest hanging fruit from an exploration perspective. And what it's now comes down to is a basic for us to pursue an, innov- an innovative financing strategy to bring in as much money as we can to enable us to pursue this, this extensive drill campaign that we have lined up. And the way that we're planning to do this is through listing Kanye on another exchange. We're not going to list it in the UK. We are currently looking at Botswana as, as a possibility, which again is something that we, we put out there. So, you know, this has been sort of, you know, speculatively sort of discussed. Um, but this is, I think, my, my instinct now is that this is the plan that we will follow for that. And so I guess just to be blunt about it, if I may, is that, you know, that as you said, right, I mean, even if this is a geological success, thesis is proven, but it's non-economic, share price suffers, right? Because people, it's an, it's a, especially right now, the market is not a patient market, right? It's a very, very tough market and a very expensive market for companies to finance in. So that dilutive financing at, at cratered uh, prices, that's, is that on the table for you as a potential thing or what? Yeah, well, is this that is off the table. This is exactly the point of what I've just described to you is that no, yeah. the, the financing is independent of the market. I understand why you're asking the question, but you're looking at it through the eyes of a, of a retail, of an investor who's mm-hmm. obviously engaged mm-hmm. in public markets. If you actually look at the wider market and what's happening, yeah, sure, the copper price has pulled back, but it's still, you know, even at its bottom now where it is, it's relative to its previous highs is in a, a very strong position. And the outlook for copper, there simply isn't mm-hmm. enough copper or nickel to mm-hmm. fuel the green revolution, which I think pretty much everybody agrees is coming. You know, the, the move towards mm-hmm. electrification is going to require an enormous amount of these metals, more than ever been mined in human history. 
as a result mm-hmm. of the bear market that there was and the lack of investment in exploration and the paucity of, of development projects that are coming through now, there is going to be a mad scramble for these assets. That's why the smart money is looking to move into copper. So this is why now you're right. In terms of doing anything in the public markets, it's a really difficult space out there. But in terms of doing a corporate transaction, there is a lot of money out of there and it really is starting to move into our space. When I first joined Cavango as a director, and we started to try and knock on doors of potential partners and potential funders. There just wasn't really that much interest. All the people were after were development projects. They're like, yeah, come back to us when you've got a resource. Come back to us when you can tell us about grades. And of course, what a lot of this money has failed to appreciate was the influence of Chinese money in this space. And what the Chinese did, they've been incredibly smart over this. They have been around the world on this massive buying spree right in front of everybody's eyes. And they pretty much have picked up most mm-hmm. of the world's development projects. Mm-hmm. So that means that leaves sort of people trying to get into this space now. Well, where do they go? The Chinese have largely sewn up the, the development, the developing um, copper market. That only leaves exploration. And what we are seeing is a really much more increased level of interest in Cavango. So even if we do hit sort of a technical success on these 082 holes, if it can prove up the model, then obviously we go to strategic investors looking to invest into Kenya resources and say, right, this is what we've proven so far. This is what our work tells us today. This is how large these targets are. It basically becomes a numbers game. If the copper exists in sufficient bulk and at sufficient grades to be an economic deposit, it's a case of just putting enough holes into your license area until you make a discovery. The business model is actually fairly straightforward in that respect. And that's how why we've positioned Kavango in the way that we have in the KCB by giving ourselves as many drill targets as we can. It's why we've been as thorough as we have. And it's why we've followed as, as extensive an exploration program as we have. We wanted to make ourselves not only drill ready, but to be drill ready to scale up in the face of this incredible bull market that we are in the early days of. And you know, the, the fundamental outlook for copper is just huge. Mm-hmm. And it's a point well made, and it's something that we have not touched on in this particular interview, but that in previous ones of mine, if for anybody who's a returning listener, it's an ongoing conversation. I think that there's a, a generational opportunity, if I can be so bold, that that in the in the resource sector, in the metal sector, nickel, copper, right, base metals, battery metals, that that we are at this this bottom of this very large leg up. Because as you said, I mean, copper, yeah, it's making headlines now around Twitter and all the rest that more copper in the next twenty years will have to be mined to hit our green energy goals than all copper that has been ever been mined in human history, history right? And I mean, exactly. that, it boggles your mind to even think about that, right? And so if we actually are serious about this transition to green energy, there's going to be unprecedented levels of demand that, that there is just not, there is just not even close to enough uh, uh, upcoming developing and explo- exploration level companies to make, meet that demand. And in, and in, addition, in addition to that is, I mean, I think that we're seeing kind of this collapse of globalization where you're seeing kind of a return to resource nationalism, right? Kind of like Cold War 2.0, where you're starting to see lines being drawn again. And yeah, the global, the global sharing of, of resources, I think, is starting to fray a bit, you know, unfortunately, maybe, right? But yeah, that's, that's, I think that's the future, right? So no, I mean, the, for me, broad level, uh, macro level thesis statement uh, for this is just un, like undoubtedly bullish, yeah. right? So. Massively anyway, so. Uh, you touched on you touched on the key point as well is that how few development projects there are relative to what's needed. And what I think a lot of people haven't really grasped in this space is the the lead time between actually mm-hmm. making a discovery and then bringing that into production. It can take six to eight years, and that's just from the point you actually make a discovery. 
There's then the whole process before that where you have to go through, for mm-hmm. example, like just like Van Gogh has this painstaking work to go out and make the discovery in the first place. And yeah, the capacity just simply doesn't exist now to, to fuel the green revolution and what capacity there is out there. The Chinese have largely sewn a lot of it up. So yeah, it's, um, it's, mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with you. I think this is a, a generational opportunity in our space. So we're going to transition here into those last couple of questions. And there's this one that I think, you know, when I, when I look through online message boards, you know, and, and I mean, investor sentiment is not always fair or accurate, but it's still something, I mean, you know, reality doesn't always have to be accurate itself, right? Or that the or interpretation of reality, you still have to confront it, right? And I, and so I will preface this by saying I'm absolutely sympathetic to exploration companies. You know, it's, it's a dangerous game. It's a very large, long, painstaking game. You have, you know, multiple levels of shareholders and permitting that you have to work your way through. You know, pre-discovery, if you're not a patient person or if you don't like risk, this is not the sector for you. And so, yeah, I, I you know, I, I always, you know, as a, as an individual investor, you just have to be prepared for missed timelines to be the norm, not the rule, right? But, you know, I guess transitioning to my question here, Kavango has had maybe a couple of moments in the last little while here where uh, what has been promised has not been delivered, if I, if I may phrase it as such. And then there's been some frustration from, from retail investors on these bull boards. And, you know, and obviously, you know, your job as CEO in part is to, to confront these narratives. Uh, people are, you know, Maybe say suggesting that that well, there, I guess I'll just recircle to what I just said. There's there's a frustration over Kavango's uh, public facing narrative, if I can phrase it like that, right? Do you mind just kind of touching on these, right, where like promises that maybe weren't executed fully, or can you just maybe talk to us about well, this reputation, if it's fair or unfair, or how so? Well, first of all, I'd say in terms of promises delivered, we've done absolutely everything that we said we would do. When I came into this company as CEO, I said we would drill. This year, we've drilled the KSZ, major program, major success. We've drilled Ditao, incredibly challenging environment um, down at Ditao. Again, big success, a lot of very valuable data, and we're now about to drill the KCB. There isn't another exploration in company in London that has done as much work and has approached our projects as aggressively as we have. However, that's not to say we've been perfect. We have made some mistakes this year. We had one um, comms blackout at the start of the year where we did make a big mistake. We, and when we were drilling the KSZ, and this is again, is all in the public domain, but I'm happy to talk about it. Um, the drill bit got stuck. It got stuck about, uh, from memory, about 50 meters before the actual target area. And it took about three weeks. It was literally stuck in the hole. And, you know, we, we just didn't know what to do. We, we did all sorts of things to try and sort of get the drill bit turning again. But over that three-week period, we went dark. And we took a decision as a company, which we as a board have to stand by. That was a, the board's decision. But it was the wrong decision. Uh, what we should have done is we should have announced to the market, said what was actually happening. Because then subsequent to that, you know, when we did actually manage to free the drill bit up and we were able to complete the hole, we actually then missed the target. So that obviously just compounded everything. So it was not right. only that we'd gone dark for a period, the hole itself then actually missed what we were looking for. Even though the downhole survey has told us we've got an incredibly exciting target that we, you know, we missed by a matter of meters. And in nickel exploration in particular, the difference between success and failure can be that fine. Mm-hmm. That nickel deposits are the equivalent of a geological lightning strike. They're very small, they're very compact. 
they're difficult to find, which is why nickel is as valuable as it is. And, you know, if it turns out mm-hmm. that this target is a nickel discovery, well, you know, it's not too uncommon that this can happen. You know, you can just miss the main target. You do the borehole EM to, to get sort of the 300 meter um, view around the hole to look for the conductor. So all things considered, you know, the hole itself and the, the project is, is looking in very good shape. And there's going to be more news about that in the near future. But in terms of our actual comms around that, we definitely could have handled that better and we should have handled that better. That was our mistake. But since then, um, obviously, market conditions have been extremely difficult. I can't put everything down to market conditions because, you know, I, I understand that once there's been this, this negative narrative starts to set in, you know, that can do quite a lot of damage towards sentiment. And, you know, I'm, I'm aware of this, but really my job has been to make sure that our team remains focused on delivering our programs on the ground. That is the most important thing. I'm here to act as the public whipping boy, so obviously I have to take you know a lot of criticism personally, but I always make myself available to shareholders. I'll respond to all emails, I'll respond to any calls, my phone number is on the bottom of our announcements, my DMs are open on Twitter. So you know we really do make ourselves available to answer any um, shareholder queries or questions. And coming on interviews like this as well, you know we do do a lot of promotion. But what I say about the business mm-hmm. itself is. I get what's called a Section 793 report every month. Now, that's something very specific in the UK, where you can get a report that will tell you who the beneficial owners of your stock are. So while on the one hand, if you just read the bulletin boards, and there is you know, there's a fair bit of negativity out there, and, you know, I, I, I do take your point. If you actually look at the volume in Cav- Cav's stock, and you look at the volume this year compared to the volume last year, that reflects what I'm seeing in our Section 793 report. So while there is... You know, there's been a degree of negative commentary that hasn't reflected in people dumping their positions. I see who our beneficial owners are every month, the month in, month out, those who bought into the story, who've really backed us and backed us as, as a company. Yes, it is difficult and painful and where the share price is. It, you know, no one wants us to be where we are. Least of all me, I own nearly two and a half percent of this company. You know, I've got a lot of my wealth is tied up. So I want this to succeed extremely badly. But, you know, we are in a phase in the market where things are extremely difficult. But what I see is that we haven't seen any sort of capitulation event in the company. People are holding, they're holding firm. And by and large, I know there are one or two voices out there who aren't happy. But, you know, at the end of the day, you've backed a business like ours. If you don't like what we're doing, sell your shares. It's as simple as that. No one's Hmm. forcing you to be part of this journey. All we can do as a company is do everything we can to go and make that tier one discovery as you led with at the start of this show and in terms of what we're doing now in the kcb i think this is now one of our best shots of achieving that hmm. and you know you know what's funny i think it circles back to where we started is that geology and marketing right it's a, it's a two-headed beast and I, if i if i'm some sort of representative of, of retail investor in this moment it's just communication right that's all we can ever hope for is good news and bad news gets shared right that's that's the the crux of it one yeah. final question here, and I'll let you on your way here. Thank you for your time. Just kind of as a follow-up to that one, with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything that you would do differently with your time as CEO of Kavango? Oh, definitely. I mean, look, this has been an incredibly difficult job, very fast-moving. There's all sorts that I've learned about this business and how it works. Um, I think, you know, we talked about some of the, the mistakes that we made on the comms. I mean, those those are easy fixes for us to make. You know, we've, we've been very honest with ourselves. I think in terms of the organization of the business, I would have made board changes much, much sooner. I think coming into this company, um, the way that things were set up really did reflect that performance in the past. 
The reason that this company was in the position that it was in April 2020 was because of the way it had been run. And I think that really when I first joined the company, what we should have done at that point is look to restructure the board. And I think had we done that originally, I think it would have made things a lot easier for us, you know, as we move forward. But overall, I've got to say, you know, people, everyone within the team is now very happy. We've recruited some excellent people into the business, um, both in terms of direct hires and consultants that we've brought in. We've introduced training programs. We've invested heavily into our our operations in Botswana. Um, our people are very happy. We've got an excellent team, a very loyal and dedicated team. And the work that they're doing is first rate, um, both from the, there's the work on the field. Um, our main camps are in Shani from KSZ and Ditao projects and up in the KCB near the town of Barnsley. Um, you know, having seen these operations in August, you know, I've, I've, I've got this overwhelming sense of pride of how our money has actually been used and how we put it to effect. So overall, I think where we are today, you know, we are in great shape. I would have loved us to have been in this position this time last year. And I think that that would have been possible had we made some changes at the very start. But we are where we are today. And I think the future looks very bright for the business. Can't go back, right? Only forward. Exactly. So I think on that note, uh, final thoughts, final words to you, Ben? It's just really that I, we touched on this. I believe there's a generational opportunity in this space. Our current market cap is seven million pounds. I've just recently bought some additional stock to bring my overall average down. Um, I think we are in a, you know, this, this is almost a once in a lifetime opportunity in this space. And I think if investors pick the right companies, they will make transformational mm -hmm. money for themselves and for their investors. And my goal with Cabango is I want to put us at the head of that field. We are about to enter a truly, truly incredible time in, in this sector. And we've done everything we can at Cabango to position ourselves that when the tide turns in public markets, we'll be among the first to move. Hmm. No, well said. And I think that's it. So thank you, Ben. I appreciate your time. Thanks to our listeners. If you're interested in Ben's company, you can find more information at kavangoresources.com, just like you think it would be spelled K-A-V-A-N-G-O. And you can find me under the name Junior Resource Investing on YouTube, Spotify, and elsewhere, your favorite podcast hosting mechanism. Ben, thank you for your time. Thanks very much for having me.